Thank you so much for coming to us today. As I said earlier, my name is John. I'm the pastor here. This is my wife, Jess, and uh, she is uh, one of the assistant principals right here at Irwin Middle School. And so um, she gets to work here like every day this week. But um, I'm here all week. I did that joke earlier. I'm here all week. So just this week. And then we're off. The kids are off. The kids are off. You're not off. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, sorry to bring that up. But uh, so what we're doing is we're doing a series called How to Poke a Bear, and we're taking those things in our life that we would rather let sleep, rather let hibernate, and we're going to go ahead and poke them now, because if we don't, we don't deal with them on the front end, then they are going to wake up when we least expect it or when it's least convenient, and they're going to come out and wreck us small. So uh, we're talking about how to, to poke those bears. We talked about um, the bear of comparison in the first week. On the second week, we talked about the bear of... Addiction, right? It was test time, right? Addiction. I just couldn't remember. And then the bear that we talked about last week was the bear of greed. And so um, I would encourage you, if you missed any of those messages, go check them out. Just did a fantastic job. So today we're going to keep going, and we have some good ones um, left. And I think that we have a couple of our most difficult ones left. Um, next week we're going to talk about shame, um, which is something that we really struggle that we would love to keep buried. Uh, and then the week after that, which is Father's Day, we're going to talk about the bear of inadequacy, which is something I know as a dad I struggle with, uh, feeling like I don't have what it takes to be who I need to be. So and One thing that has, um, I guess it's definitely a God thing, so I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm weak and flesh as I am. Um, but how many of you have mentioned to us um, how thankful for you are for the particular week, because that's what you were struggling with that week, or that's what you were kind of thinking through or dealing with. And I want you to know these um, topics were picked out long ago. Um, we, we plan out long in advance, and so that's totally God speaking to you um, through these words, and so I'm, I'm really excited and I'm thankful that you share those stories with us because they're really encouraging, and just it's neat to see the growth um, that God is causing to happen in the church. It's amazing to, it's amazing to see how God already knows in January what we're going to need in June. Um, so today, what we're going to talk about is a very difficult one. I, I, I don't know if it's, I will put it right on par with Shane, but um, today we're going to talk about the bear of grief. The bear of grief. And if, if you've never had to grieve the loss of someone in particular, uh, then someday you will. And it is probably the hardest thing that we will ever go through in life, is to lose someone or even something that we love. Uh, we are actually, did you, I don't know if you know this, because we didn't talk about it when we prepared, so I wanted to drop it on you. Did you know that we are currently going through a grieving process? Because, because we, have just, we have just experienced the death in our family. Our favorite Mexican restaurant just closed. <laughs> the only joke of our message, folks. Get out of Unfortunately, our favorite Mexican restaurant in Grand Quarry, back behind them, okay? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Unfortunately, they closed. Everybody sorry. knows what we're talking about, and nobody went and supported them enough. I know. It's sad. <laughs> well, we felt like, you know, when I see a, a restaurant, I saw somebody on Facebook post uh, some, a restaurant in Myrtle Beach closed. And I don't remember which one it was. But they were like, I'm heartbroken. You know, what, what was it they closed? Do you remember what it was closed? Sweetwater Cafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Saltwater salt water Creek. Saltwater salt Creek. Saltwater Creek. Right? In, in, uh, in uh, Rolls in Yeah, yeah. So Saltwater Creek closed. And they said uh, on Facebook, it's not in our notes, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm weird right now. I'm all pretty bad. She said, I'm heartbroken. Saltwater Cafe closed. No, no, no. Hominy Grill. It was Hominy Grill in Charleston. That's what it was. 
spell comedy. And I was like, I don't know how heartbroken you are. <laughs> you couldn't spell the name of the place. Like, like it, I know, it's, it's, one thing, it's one thing to lament the loss of a restaurant you've been to twice, you know? But at La Coco, we go to on a weekly basis. Yeah, it was a family member. It was like a family member, so we're sad to see it close. So we're happy to grieve that and go through that. So, that's probably not the kind of grief you're thinking about, but it's, it's the kind of grief I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, the devil, let me give you the definition of grief, grief, and I think the definition is very, of course, intentionally worded, um, and I actually want to, want to, you would just kind of talk about some of the elements of the definition. All right, the definition, I believe this is from Merriam-Webster, for grief is deep and poignant distress caused by, or as if by, bereavement. Deep and poignant distress caused by, or as if by, bereavement. So, um, if you'll pardon me, um, I was an English teacher long ago, and so you have to know that each definition in a word is very carefully chosen. And so, the, I want to look at the second half of this definition. It's caused by bereavement, so that's losing something, the death of something, or as if by bereavement, so it's the feeling that you've lost something, or that something has um, died, there's been a death. Um, and it doesn't define what or who because it's that general feeling. And then I think the word distress in the definition is so powerful. Um, because what we find with grief is that it's not, the word there, distress can't be switched out with sad. Um, because it's so much more complicated than that. And we're going to see that even in scripture. It's not a sadness. It is a compilation of all of these feelings. And usually those feelings are unique to you. Um, when my father died, I share with you that he died this fall, um, it, it was only the word distress that I think I could define how I was feeling because it was so complicated for me to work through what was actually going on. And so I really want us to remember that this is, this is the now, right? Grief is a feeling, but it's often a compilation of a lot of feelings swirling around. And that grieving, the verb of that, is a process because you just don't go through and wake up one day and be like, wow, okay, I'm all better. I'm no longer feeling that one feeling because it's so many. And so I want to I want us to really keep that in mind today. Well, you're feeling that distress and sadness absolutely uh, is, a, is a major part of that. But you also feel feelings of anger. You feel you feel regret. You feel you might feel shame. There's a lot of different things that come into play that you're trying to process all at the same time. Which is why the grieving process is so important for everyone to go through. You can't just stuff all of that, those feelings that you have. And maybe you lost someone recently or maybe a long time ago, and instead of dealing with the feelings, you stuff them all. And those things are like, they will just boil inside of you until eventually they come out. They're there, and they've gone into hibernation, but they're going to wake up at some point, and we have to deal with those things. Right, and grief comes in, um, as a result of a lot of different things. Um, I know as a teenager, I went through grieving my parents' marriage when they divorced. Um, it, you might have lost a job, um, either suddenly or over a long term of relationship, of course. Um, possessions, um, or might, it might even be a dream, the death of a dream that you had. Um, one of the most difficult grieving processes that John and I went through um, was when we had to close a campus. Um, we, we chased that dream, we followed it, we believed in it, we believed um, that God led us there. And when we had to close it and say goodbye, um, it was a long, long, distressful process of grief that we went through. Um, 
um, to be able to even um, get out of bed in the morning um, and want to keep going and want to keep you know um, working um, at this career um, of spreading God's word. And so there's a lot of different things that we may be breathing across the room um, and a lot of different levels to that. Um, so I want you to know that whatever that is that's coming to your mind, that's what we're going to process through today. Um, and I want you to just be really real with it and really raw with it. And we know that that's going to bring up some emotion, and that's okay. Um, and obviously the biggest um, the biggest grieving process goes through um, losing somebody that you love, um, somebody um, that is just an integral part of your life. Um, and when they pass away, the grief is almost it almost sits on your chest to the point where you cannot breathe um, because it seems so final. And the closer someone is, the more it hurts. And that's certainly um, evident um, in scripture as well. Right. So as we think about this process of grieving, I generally find that if you want to know how to do something well, watch Jesus do it. Because if you can watch Jesus do something, you're going to see the, the perfect way to walk through it. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at a time uh, in Jesus' life, when he lost somebody who he was very, very close with. And it's found in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to John chapter 11, um, because it's definitely not it won't be on the screen this today. week. So if you have a print Bible or if you have your, your phone and uh, you have a version Bible app or some other Bible app, you can go to John 11. In fact, if you have an app on your phone, you can click on the menu button at the bottom, click on events. And it'll find this service for you that'll have all the scriptures in order so that you can read, you can take notes, and you can send those notes back to yourself and all that. Okay? So uh, hopefully uh, you're taking time to get to John chapter 11. And let me give you just a little context about this before we dive in. Um, Jesus, yes, he did ministry you know, publicly for about three years as we read in the Gospels. And he had a tight group of people around him, his disciples and all those others that were following them. Uh, men, women, children, all of them that followed him around everywhere he went. Um, but Jesus had a, a tight group of friends that were, by and large, just friends. And they lived in a place called Bethany. Um, and when Jesus was tired, when he was beaten down, when he, was, when he needed to get away and he needed to rest, he would go to Bethany. And there were three of his closest friends in the world. Mary, who's not his mom. Martha, and she's also not Mary Magdalene, a different Mary. There's Mary's the were like John's are today, okay? So uh, there's Mary, her sister Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And there are several stories about Jesus with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the scripture. One that's really interesting, uh, Jesus goes to their house and they have a, a big party. And when they have the party, Martha is running around and getting all the stuff done, preparing the hors d'oeuvres and setting the table and making sure everything's exactly, telling people to take their shoes off and all that stuff. And uh, while Martha is doing that, Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. She's just soaking up everything that he's got. And uh, Martha goes and scolds Mary. <laughs> how, how dare you? We've got stuff to do. You know, get to work, sis. You know, she's always a lazy one, just hanging out with people all the time. We'll get to work. And so she goes and gives, gives uh, Mary what for. And Jesus looks back at Martha and says, no, 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 you listen to me. Mary chose what was better here. You know, you don't need to be so busy with all the details. You need to just sit about people and cheese. So a, Which, arguably, if you have a sister, like, that's like the ultimate burn. Because I've got sisters. Yeah. So, and Jesus like, no, your sister's doing it better. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Good thing. Um, and, and there was a really special time, also, where, where Mary um, loved Jesus. She really had, was close with him. 
um, she, uh, she anointed his feet. She, she put perfume in her hair and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. That, that's, that's this man. And um, so uh, what we're going to see happen uh, is going to happen. Jesus is going to start in Jerusalem, but, uh, but Bethany is where sort of the action is. And uh, this is where Jesus would go to rest and recover. I, um, a little, kind of a little side note, I guess. I grew up on, um, on one of the Finger Lakes, all right? In the words of Jim Carrey, the Finger Lakes. So uh, uh, up on the, we grew up on the pinky of the Finger Lakes, Canandaigua Lake, and that's where I, I grew up. And uh, there's a camp called the Turno Christian Camp on the lake, and I spent a lot of my summers at that camp. And uh, they have all the cabins and all the stuff the kids do when they go to camp. Or, but then down right by the water, there's this big house, and it's, uh, it's like a mini hotel. There are a bunch of different rooms in it, and they're kind of bunk rooms and that sort of stuff. It has this beautiful front porch right out by the water. And uh, they invite families, um, family reunions, couples, anybody who needs to just get away and rest and recover for a little while can go and stay in this place. And I think it used to be free. I don't know if it's free anymore, but it used to be free. You could go stay at this place. And it was called the Bethany House. Because that's exactly what Jesus would do if you go to bed. So that's what we're going to be. That's the situation we're going to be dropping into. Jesus is going to start off in Jerusalem. Though, all right? So John chapter 11, starting uh, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. That's, I mean, that's, first of all, it's beautiful language, the way they put it. Second of all, they didn't even need to say his name. All they had to say was, the guy here in Bethany that you love is sick. And Jesus would know exactly who they were talking about. Jesus was incredibly close personal friends with Lazarus. I think that's important to know. He shared a connection with people in, in many ways even greater, I think, than we even share connections with people. So maybe as we talk about this story, you think about your best friend, that one person who's always been closest to you. You might be married to him, you might not be. Uh, but the person that you're closest with, maybe you think along those lines. And when Jesus heard that, well, check this out, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So there's a purpose of this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we're getting to see the tight personal connection that Jesus has with these three. And we're going to fast forward a little bit um, to verse 11. Jesus has some discussion with his disciples. And then in verse 11, these things he said, and after he said them, he said, or after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now he's saying, Now I'm going to go down to uh, now I'm going to go down to Bethany, even though some time has passed, that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So I think it's funny. One thing you'll notice as you go through the scripture is that the disciples are just a little bit thick. Okay? They have a little bit of a thick skull. Jesus has a hard time getting through to them. There are many, many times in scripture where Jesus says something figurative to them. They're like, I don't get it. Can you explain that to me? All right, fine. I'll boil it down for you. So he has to boil it down. When he says Lazarus sleeps, what he really means is Lazarus is, is dead. Jesus 
in their defense, I feel like I'm also like that. <laughs> a lot of times I feel like you speak to me, I'm like, can you be a little bit clearer? <laughs> All right. So they actually hang out for a little while, about four days or so. And then Jesus heads down to uh, Bethany from, from where he is. He has to convince uh, the disciples to go down. Because at first he says, I'm going to head down. And then um, Thomas, Doubting Thomas, is one of the other places we see in the scripture. Doubting Thomas says, Jesus, I don't think you, know, you want to go down there. You know, last time you were down there, somebody tried to stone you. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea. Jesus is like, no, no, we're going to go down. We've got we've to go there. And, uh, and then Thomas says, and it's beautiful, it's famous. He's like, all right, guys, well, if he's going to go down there and die, we might as well go with him. So that was, that was Thomas. He, he may have doubted uh, Jesus at the end, but he was ready to roll with him at the beginning. So, um, so they head down in uh, verse, 19, or verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. So Lazarus was dead. He'd been buried and in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. I think that's important to note. Yeah, and, then, and that, when we were studying this week, that shocked me because I was thinking, well, yeah, if it's a long journey to get to Lazarus, I understand the delay. Like, they've got to pack up everything and, and head out that way. And it would have taken them four days to get there anyway. And so it's just that they were on the way and they just didn't make it in time. And yet, Scripture tells us that he was just about two miles away, which back then is, you know, what you would walk in a day. That's, a, that's an adequate amount of time. Um, that you would have to get there. And so it was intentional that Jesus delayed going to Lazarus. He waited on purpose. Um, so, at verse 19, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So this, um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they have a group of people because here we see them all gathered together mourning the loss. And even four days later, they're still gathering, they're still mourning. Um, they're still together. And so we're going to jump um, to verse 32. So if you're in children's ministry, you say that's the little 32. Follow along until you find it. <laughs> that's what they're doing back then. Um, so in between those verses that we're skipping from, from 20 to 32, Martha goes to see Jesus, and Jesus um, tells her that Lazarus will rise again, which is obviously a mind-blowing concept. She doesn't quite get it because that hasn't happened. And she said, there. I know he'll rise again right. later. I, I listen to you, Jesus. I know that he'll rise again. Um, because he has eternal life, and she doesn't get it. Um, and so then they go to tell Mary. So we're going to pick up in verse 32. It says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I just got to take a minute and, like, tell Mary I feel her in her spirit, like I am with her. Like, not only is she sitting at his feet, which shows the absolute reverence she has for her friend and her leader and her teacher, but also she's given him a little bit of business because she's like, hey, you know that you could have stopped this. I know you know we know that you could have prevented this. And how I, I felt that way. I get it. I am so with Mary in this moment. And it's okay. And we see one of his best friends in the world kind of handing it to him. And I know I'm putting tone in there, but it's the only What's funny is everybody else is probably sitting around like, oh, you can't talk to him like that. You can't say that to Jesus. You can't say that to Jesus. I totally get it. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. I just think that phrase describes grief at its very moment of capacity. He groaned in his spirit when you just don't have the words 
spirit. Jesus didn't either. He groaned in his spirit. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? It's a powerful moment. You know, Jesus wept famously the shortest verse in the entire Bible, right? Jesus, just two words. Um, very powerful and to know that Jesus felt that level of emotional distress. Um, that it's not the only time we see him experience emotional distress. I think one of the better even examples is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's betrayed, and he goes off to pray by himself. And he is so overwhelmed by the weight of what he knows is coming. Uh, and he asks God to take it away, that your will take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He submits to God in that. And he's so distressed in that moment that he sweats drops of blood. Which is, that's a literal thing. That can actually happen to people. And it happened to him. He was under so much stress. And he feels that level of emotional connection to, to people and life and all of that. Um, and here we see that he weeps. And the Jews look at him weeping and they say, oh, look how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And I, and I think that for many, many years, I read the scripture, seeing that Jesus wept, and I thought the same thing they thought, that he was crying because he missed Lazarus. But I realized something. That's not why he's crying at all. Jesus isn't crying because he, he misses Lazarus. The scripture says, therefore, when he saw her weeping, when he saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And then he wept. Jesus, Jesus was not grieving or lamenting. He was not distressed over Lazarus. He wasn't worried about Lazarus at all. His distress was for the people who were left behind. His distress was for the people who were distressed. Not for Lazarus himself. He was crying because of because of them. And I think this is so important for us to, to just take in because in this moment, in your moment, Jesus sees your pain and he groans in his spirit. He understands and he knows how much it is hurting you to lose this someone or this something that you are grieving. And I don't think it's too far to say that in when you are broken over your loss, that he is there with you and weeping with you. And your pain moves him to tears. What is true in the Bible about his best friends is true for you because he loves you just as much as he loved them. And so he is groaning in his spirit as we're, as we're dealing with these losses. And it's not... I think it's really important because here's a spoiler alert. The next set of verses, he knows what's coming because he doesn't, right? Lazarus isn't going to stay in the tomb. Literally, like right now, in a few verses, he's going to walk out. And that just, if you didn't know that spoiler, it's coming up and I'm sorry about that. But I think it makes us question here and it's okay to question why then if he's raising Lazarus, why he doesn't fix our pain like that? Yeah, was it, so he's about to raise Lazarus back. So did he raise Lazarus to ease their pain? 
Because it'd be easy for us to say, okay, then if I'm distressed enough, will Jesus look at me in my pain? Will he fix things for me if I'm just as distressed as Mary was? Right. And he makes it very clear in Scripture that he is not going to raise Lazarus um, because of their pain, because he knows it's temporary. He is going to raise Lazarus because it's going to bring glory to God. He says that way back when he's waiting in those verses, he says Lazarus is sick and he's sleeping and that's because it's for God's glory and we're just going to stay right here for a minute until it happens. And it's the same thing in this next set of Because what Jesus is about to do, he is about to do what he always does. He's about to breathe life back into dead things. That is what he is going to do. And this is the example set for us in scripture and the example that we get to we get to lay our hearts on when we are dealing with this. And I, I think it's important to point out that Jesus let them go through that pain. He, and, and he hurt with them through it, but he let them go through it so that in the end, God would receive glory from what happened. And this is, I had this conversation with John uh, when we were talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, and I have to wonder, just in the human side, because remember, Jesus is both God and human. I have to wonder if his human side knew four days ago that his best friend was suffering and so wanted to go help. I don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But I can only imagine that he was hurting too, and he wanted to, but he knew that God's plan was greater and was bigger. And so he stuck to the plan, as he always does. So we're going to go to verse 38. Still chapter 11, John 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. So Martha the pragmatist, right? She's the one who's preparing all the things for the party. Jesus shows up to the tomb. He says, Roll the stone away. And she's like, That's not a good idea. Jesus, I don't know. I don't know if you have. I don't know. I mean, how this process goes. I can warn you if you need me to, uh, but it's not pretty. And uh, I actually, my favorite version of this is the King James version. We're reading New King James here, but the, the, my favorite version is the King James version. She says, "By this time, he stinketh." <laughs> I, I didn't even know that was a word. Apparently, that's a word. So, yeah, not a good idea. Practically speaking. Reverend. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Here's one of those moments where Jesus is like, Hey, uh, Father, thanks for hearing me. Also, P.S., I'm only saying that for them. <laughs> now when he said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come forth and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with great clothes and his face was wrapped in a cloth and Jesus said to them loose him and let him go then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him which is like one of those no-duh moments, right? <laughs> like, yeah, of course they did. They just saw their friend who's been dead four days. There's no doubt, right? There's no doubt that Lazarus wasn't just sleeping, that he had passed away, and then out he walks. In his grave clothes, out he walks. And when we go back to why does Jesus not rush to Lazarus, right? 
Why does he not just rush to his side? Why was he not upset over Lazarus? Why was he weeping at their pain, not his own pain? It's because he knew this moment was coming. And honestly, he knows this moment is coming for all of them. All of us. He knows it. Because death is not final. And here's Lazarus, a physical representation of what we believe as followers of Christ. And how, I think it's just so cool that his best friend got to be used in this way. By the way, I think Lazarus is like, by the way, for using me to do this majorly important lesson. Yeah, I've, I've often thought about, you don't read a lot about Lazarus after this happens, but my goodness, he must have been popular. Can you imagine the guy walking around who used to be dead and is now alive? The confidence that guy must have had and, and how people must have been drawn to him. Uh, how, how, you know, magnetic he must have been to people after that. Right. And Lazarus had to die in order for God's glory to be seen. And you've got to remember, we are living post-resurrection, right? So we, we already know what's about to happen to Jesus. We know that he's living this perfect life and he's doing his ministry and he's performing miracles. And we know that he's about to go to the cross. And he's about to die a painful death for all of our sin. That he's about to take that. And then, proving that he has power over death, he's about to walk back out. But they only heard those words. They weren't able to understand the way that we're able to read scripture and understand. And so this, Lazarus walking out, is a sign to them that God is exactly who he says he is. That Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And that he has Power over death. And here's the thing. In Christ, everyone is resurrected. Everyone has eternal life. We believe that as a core belief of our church, that we have eternal life. And it's not immediately like Lazarus. We're not walking out. But eventually, we will live again. Yeah, so just as Lazarus walked out of the tomb, Christ walked out of the tomb, and both of those are a sign to us that when we put our faith in Christ, we believe that he died on the cross for our sin and rose again, that we too receive eternal life. We too walk out of the grave. And you know, we may die here on earth and be gone for some time, but uh, God is going to return to establish his kingdom, and we're a part of that, and we will all be, those that are in Christ will all be a part of that. So it is not final. What that does for us is it helps us with a few truths. One is that grief should be drained by the gospel. When we, um, when we understand this, the way we grieve should be framed by who we know God to be and the truth that he has laid out for us in scripture. Right. So to, to frame our grief in the gospel means to look at that loss in an eternal perspective rather than a temporal one. It means when someone passes away, uh, as we would say that, as someone passes on, or however you want to say that, um, when they pass away, Jesus was not grieving over Lazarus because he knew Lazarus was going to rise again. We don't need to grieve for Jesus because Jesus rose again. We don't need to grieve for those that we know are in Christ and put their faith in Christ who have died because we know that they will rise again. So the way that we grieve that person is different than the way the rest of the world grieves because the rest of the world thinks that person is gone and I'm never going to see them again. But we should grieve differently when we know that person is in Christ. All right, In the light of the gospel, the way we grieve changes. Um, Paul explained this to the church in Thessalonica. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Verse 13, he said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, I think it's very interesting that Paul, when he's talking to this church, chooses the same terminology that Jesus chose when he was talking uh, to his disciples. When he said, Lazarus sleeps. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to have a wrong thinking about the people who have fallen asleep. Who's he talking about? The people that have died. Their friends and family members that have already died. And so he chooses that same terminology. I think we would be wise to put on that same terminology in our own mind that when we know someone who knows Christ and they pass away, rather than saying they're dead, rather than saying they're gone, rather than saying they've been lost or anything like that, we say, you know, they're asleep. They've passed on. I like that term too. It just means they moved on to the next phase, right? To think, to know that their life has not ended, it has only begun. All right, so he says, uh, those who fall asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So he said, I don't want you to grieve like other people grieve who, who feel like it's the end of the line. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. All right, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So there's a... There, seems to be a misunderstanding within their church that you, in order to receive a full reward from God, you have to be alive when Jesus returns. And they're expecting Jesus to return within their lifetime. And so people die and they're mourning for them because they think that they, that they have lost something because they died before Jesus returned. And he's trying to assure them, no, 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 no. When Christ returns, he's bringing all of them with, he's bringing all of them with him and, the, and you too. And he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with shout. Uh, he's referencing here what we call the rapture. Um, when Christ returns, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have gone ahead of us in death will come with him. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul is saying it's vitally important that when we lose someone, we're comforting each other to know that in light of the gospel... Life is just beginning. They're asleep. They haven't passed away. So I love that mentality. Now, I think the hardest thing, this is really where it gets tough. And as, as a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals. And um, the hardest the hardest moments are when someone passes away and you're not sure whether they trust Christ. And um, very rarely have I ever done a funeral where someone like, nope, they didn't. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if they ask pastors to do those funerals, but uh, he said, no, they absolutely were, were not a Christian. I've not done one of those, but I've done plenty of funerals where they go, I don't know. I think so. I don't know. And the truth is, we, we won't know. Okay? We, we don't. And, and people always want, you know, when you do a funeral like that, want me to make a statement like up there in heaven. And I'm like, well, I don't know how I feel about that. But the, um, the, the, we don't really know. Um, it's more a matter of our comfort to know. And um, so but those are the hardest ones. And maybe you've been through that before where you're unsure. And what that should do, rather than lamenting them or grieving for them, even in that case, because what's done is done, what it should do is it should turn our attention to all of the people around us that we love so much that we don't want to leave that question mark with. We want to make sure we know their spiritual condition and whether they put their faith and trust in Christ so that if something were to happen, and I'll tell you, the, the ones where we've gone, mm, I don't know, it's always been young people. Because by, by the end of someone's life, you've got a pretty good idea. But it's teenagers and, and young adults that I've done funeral for, which, which we all thought they had more time, and they didn't. So, 
So what it does is it creates, in light of, we, again, we, we read in light of the gospel and say, hey, the good news is that if you put your faith in Christ, you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven and then in his new kingdom. Um, but the other side of that is the bad news that if, we, if someone does not put their faith in Christ, they're not going to spend eternity with him. They're going to spend eternity separated from God. And I don't want that for anyone here, and I don't want that for anyone in our community. I don't want anybody that for anyone in the world, and I don't think you do either. So the onus in light of the gospel is that we should then turn our attention um, to the people around us and say, how can I help them to see this in the light of the gospel and make decisions that they need to make? And I think it's important to point out, in none of this scripture is it saying, um, then, you, then you shouldn't be feeling feelings of grief. Like, oh, no, you no. are grieving. And, yes. and, and that's, it, it doesn't take away the pain, it changes the perspective. And so you are going to feel these tough feelings, and yet it does turn our focus less on the one um, who's gone that we're missing and more on the people that are still with us. And saying, how am I going to use um, my grief to reach out to those around me? Um, and I think that's what we see from Jesus here. He uses the grief. Um, his concern rose out of the pain of the people closest to him, not um, out of his. And so I think it's really important for us as a church to also learn how to handle grief, the grief of one another well um, as a church family. And our second point today is that grief should be shared by the group. Um, you'll notice that Mary and Martha um, had a group. It mentions the group every time that they talk about them grieving. Um, they had a group. And there is a big mistake and a big misconception when you're dealing with grief that it should be a moment to get over or it should be a private journey or that it should be done in isolation because your grief might cause others pain. And that is a lie. And it is a lie from Satan who is trying to separate you from your group so that he can attack your thoughts and he can isolate you. And there's not anything here, there's not any part of the grieving process that should be done on your own. It's too much to bear on your own, and Jesus knew that. Healthy grieving does not isolate us. And so if, if you're in that process and you're feeling isolated from other people, that is a trick of Satan against you, okay? That's what he has to do. Um, he has to, he has to set, you know, uh, the, the scripture says that Satan's like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And, you know, in, in the wild, that's what a lion has to do in order to get a meal. You know, when zebras in our herd, they look, part of the reason they have those stripes is because they look like this massive, like, weighty thing, you know? The, 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 the lion is not able to pick out an individual zebra. What he has to do is try and separate one off from the herd. When we can separate it off from the herd, then, then well, he is, it's she, women hunt uh, in the lion kingdom. So she separates one off from the herd, and then she can track it down and, and kill it, okay? That's what Satan tries to do with us. He tries to separate us from each other, divide us off. And so, uh, in the next chapters, Paul talked to uh, Thessalonians about grieving properly. In verse, or chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So Paul's instruction to them was, you got to stick together. If you're going to get through this, if you're going to process this, if you're going to understand this properly, you got to stay together. I find that when I get in my mind by myself, weird things happen. 
I think crazy thoughts when I'm thinking all up in here. But when I talk to another believer and they're able to keep me centered and focused, because those emotions will really take you over, when they can give me perspective and focus and all of that, then I can actually walk through something in a healthy way. And uh, I know there's lots of different, for, for us in the room, we're all at different places. You know, some of you maybe have never lost anyone who is really close to you. I'll tell you, the day is coming, so you might stick this in your back pocket and make sure that you're ready when that, when that day comes. Uh, but some of you have dealt with this in a very serious way, and maybe you be dealing with it right now. So I want to take a minute and challenge um, each of us who knows someone who is grieving. Um, this point is for us that grief is to be shared by the group. And so um, part of it is that they've got to reach out to us, but part of it lays right on our shoulders as the church. Um, we cannot let them do this hopelessly. We have to share with them, um, not just in the light of the gospel, what grieving is and what death means, but also the comfort, um, the comfort of our company, the comfort of our words. And I'm not talking about the I'm praying comment on Facebook. I am not even talking about the dropping off of the lasagna after the funeral. I am talking about walking beside and showing up and letting them grieve, whether that looks like talking about the thing or the person they've lost, or if it looks like just sitting there, or if it looks like taking them out to do something, or if it looks like eating the lasagna with them, right? We are called to not let people grieve and maybe it's you maybe maybe you're struggling right now with a loss that you have experienced and you're trying to process it maybe you're trying to process it on your own and i want to encourage you first of all to say that you don't have to do that don't feel like you need to hold it in or you need to hide or you need to be strong or any of those things nobody expects you to be strong you don't need to be strong god can be strong for you so so lean on him all right trust in god as you walk through to spend time praying closely with him. Think about his salvation. Think about what he's done for you. Think about how he loves you. Think about how he's saved you. Think about how he's going to walk with you. Think about what he has coming for you. And also, make sure that you are talking, that you, reach, that you reach out and express to somebody how you're feeling so they can give you perspective and they can give you encouragement and they can give you comfort so that you don't have to do it alone. And there are plenty of places for you to find those people. They may already be in your life. You may, you may need to find someone here through the church, and you can do that. You can talk to someone at the resource center, or you can put it on your connection card. We'll get you connected and find a place for you to plug in and to make those kinds of connections. We just shift over it alone. We need to frame our grief with the gospel, and we need to go through our grief together. So I'll encourage you to do that today. And, and that bear that's, that's hiding out, that's sitting way down deep, that you thought you could hide, that you thought you could keep asleep. It's time to poke it. It's time to wake it up and deal with it so that you can heal. So would you pray for us? Dear Father, um, I just thank you for, I just thank you for Jesus. And I thank you for the example that he set for us um, through one of these dark and difficult things that we have to deal with. And and we know that it's just a product of us being on earth and being separated um, from you, but I'm just so thankful that even in that, you revealed the plan that there is eternal life, that because Jesus came out of the grave after his crucifixion, that we also get to have eternal life, not separated, but together. I just pray and ask for wisdom for the church family that when they know someone is grieving that they that they step in 
that they step up, that they answer the call, that they are like the group of Jews with Mary and Martha, that they are traveling around, circling around um, the person grieving and not letting them do it alone. And to the person grieving, Lord, I just ask that you bring down comfort and love and peace and just wrap them and let them know that you are here, that you are groaning in spirit because of their heartbrokenness, and that you see them right where they are, and that you are meeting them right there, and just bring that level of, of comfort. Here we go.